Turn again to Acts chapter 17. And I want us to look at verses 22 and 23. Acts chapter 17 and verses 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So the Areopagus then, that's the name for a small and powerful group of men, less than 30 in number, men who formerly held office in the city of Athens. They were aristocratic um, Athenians. Their reputation and influence was widespread. One of their concerns was about the itinerant teachers who would go from place to place in Greece and give series of lecturers and share new ideas, and they had to exercise some control over these men. And the Apostle Paul had been uh, uh, attracting some comment. He'd gone, slipped into the city, and then began to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath days, and then he moved into the marketplace, still the center of Athens today, where some of the great demonstrations took place uh, yesterday about the economic situation in Athens. And uh, there he began to teach. He had a pitch, and people came, and they came back, and more and more people gathered. And finally then, a group of the, uh, the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, came to, to hear him. And uh, they invited him to come with them to meet the, the Areopagus itself. It was really an informal meeting. The council had to come to some judgment of whether they would bring formal charges um, against Paul or not. Clarify your message, they were asking him. Because what they heard so far about Jesus and the resurrection seemed to them incomprehensible. So it was a wonderful opportunity for Paul. Come and explain Christianity to us. What a, what a, a gift for any gospel preacher. And his words would be heard and they would be discussed for days afterwards. It was just like, um, well, almost like um, Joan Bakewell when she invited Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones onto her afternoon program to discuss the Christian faith. And uh, we still watch that encounter with delight and are so pleased it's on the web. You can look at it there and, and he, she probes him and he answers her so wonderfully attractively. And so surrounded by the Areopagus then, uh, the apostle explained the gospel to them. And when he concluded then, um, they would ask a few questions, and everyone would go home, but the buzz would spread across Athens. Have you heard? Have you heard what happened at the Areopagus today? There was a man named Paul, and he was defending his teaching about someone called Jesus, whom Paul reckons to be the Son of God, and uh, someone who rose from the dead. No. Yes, that's what he, he claims and he claims he saw him alive after his resurrection. No. Yes, that's what he said to the Areopagus. It was a God-created opportunity then to explain the Christian religion to a city that had never heard of him. 
And God will give sovereign, amazing opportunities like that. Some in suffering times. Um, some before courts. He gives them words to say. The gospel has nothing to fear from uh, open discussions. We've nothing to lose in putting forward uh, the Christian message. If there's pride in our hearts, then that'll mess it up. So we go uh, our own great weakness feeling, and we go and we lisp and we stammer, but uh, God doesn't allow a word to fall to the ground if we're poor in spirit and we are giving as best we can with help from heaven. That message to men and women. Paul wasn't afraid of standing in the public square and speaking amongst all the other hucksters and the slave market and the people selling food and businesses and looking for people to work for them. And there he was in the public square uh, speaking to them. And he wasn't afraid when he met the Areopagus. So firstly, how did Paul address them? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, verse 22, standing was... The custom in Gentile countries when Jesus, Jesus sat when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And he would sit in the synagogue and speak. That was the Jewish custom. But the Gentile custom, like us then, is to stand and, and speak. And we see from his whole approach that he was respectful. And he was gentle. We also see he wasn't a comedian. From their expressions, it wasn't a, a friendly session. They took themselves seriously. Uh, their sense of humor wasn't their strongest point. And he didn't start with jokes. And neither was Paul a revolutionary to stand and declaim the rights of man, snarling out his opposition to wealth and privilege and the aristocracy. That's not a suitable stance then for Christian testimony. Uh, Paul was going to give them a totally new view of themselves and of the world they lived in and what life was all about and their future and their encounter with God that was inescapable at the judgment. There was no place for arrogance as he addressed them. That would have been the end of his defense and his actions and his spirit would have been so big that the little words he said would have been crushed by his wrong spirit. And they wouldn't have listened to him very long. So he was properly polite. Uh, we are told to give honor to whom honor is due. Uh, Peter tells us that we are to be ready to give anyone a reason for the hope that's in us. And we are to do it with meekness and respect. There's little place in the public defense of the gospel for ridicule and superiority and name-calling and mockery. They're inappropriate weapons in our warfare. But love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, these are great weapons that we use well in the defense of the faith. And especially that we put on the belt of truth. It's important for young Christians. If you, uh, you know, have a teacher and he's pushing evolution, well, he knows much more about it than you do. So you just be very careful because he'll ask you questions and you won't be able to answer them. And you, you be respectful and, and happy in saying you're not sure about these things. That's, that's okay. Uh, 
Luther at the Diet of Worms. His life is at stake. They've already burned his books. And that's the great sound. You next, they say. And so he arrives at Worms uh, very differently from uh, Paul's arrival at Athens. Paul got off the boat and slipped and was lost in the crowd. There was no welcoming committee. But when it was announced that Paul, in a carriage with another man, had arrived at at Worms, then um, 2,000 people turned up and they escorted him all the way to his inn. And we know from his uh, famous closing words to the emperor uh, what he said. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand, I can do, I cannot do otherwise. It was uh, wonderfully courageous and dignified. Secondly, what did Paul say? Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Well, that last word is translated in the NIV as religious. It is translated by the authorized version as too superstitious. So then, um, neither translation seems just right to capture what that word means in Greek. We don't seem to have an equivalent in English. Because if Paul was saying they were very religious, then that seems to be paying them a compliment. And Paul certainly wasn't doing that. He wasn't prone to flattery. And there was a rule in the Areopagus that no invited speaker was to use flattery to gain its support. But if, on the other hand, he was saying, you're too superstitious, you're gullible, then he was beginning his speech by criticizing them. And that wasn't his intention. So the actual Greek word here seems to be an umbrella term, an ambiguous term. And maybe Paul was using it because of its ambiguity. It could mean in some circumstances superstition, gullibility. It could, use, it could mean in other, other contexts, religious. And so the men are thinking then, as they listen to him, no, what is he saying here now then? Is he saying we are a superstitious people? Or is he saying we're religious people? And Paul, what Paul is doing is commentating on the fact that religion is buried deep in the psyche of every member of the Areopagus and pervasively through this whole city of Athens. Uh, These philosophers are showing that they are conscious that uh, around them and above them and beneath them and alongside them and inside them there is a a, a power, a presence, a a sense of deity that more than the physical realities that we can touch and smell and and taste and and see and photograph and record, there's a God. The fact that 
some of you have never been here before, you never met me before, and you're hearing then big truths, profound truths, and it's I'm not speaking nonsense rhymes to you, meaningless things. But but you're following me. You're I'm making sense to you because you and I are made in the image and likeness of God and we, we have a conscience and we have understanding. We're not like animals. In the Old Testament, then, it's laid down that there's, to say that there's no God is an indication of your, your foolishness. Because the evidence for God is overwhelming around us in creation and within us by conscience. And every man, the Bible says, has some religion. And he is actively clamping down on any other, on the great truths of God that speak to us night and day. The beautiful sunset last night, the change in the weather and the sun that shone and the, the grandness of it all. What a wonderful, wonderful world. Words fail to describe it all. The God of creation lives. And he's saying, come and, and come to know me and worship me and live with me. A sense of God is normal and ubiquitous for the entire human race. You go to the Aborigine on Australia and he's got a sense of the great spirit there. And you go to the banker on Wall Street and the scientists in Harvard and he's conscious there of the God that he needs to know himself. A sense of the presence of God, the reality of God is, is quite normal everywhere, in every man. We are living in abnormal times in Wales. So Paul was reminding them of the sense of God. You're religious people then. Here in Athens, you've had Aristotle and uh, you've had uh, Plato and you've had Socrates. You, you, you are still very religious, aren't you? We cannot but be religious. Every molecule and every galaxy bears the hallmark of the creation. L look around you. Look, look through a telescope. Look through a microscope. Whatever you see contains the personal autograph or the fingerprints, or the DNA of deity. The word who was with God, he made it. Nothing was made without him. The revolutionaries in uh, the French Revolution said that they would pull down the steeples of the churches, and they would rid the land of all Christian superstition. And the Christians replied by saying, yes, you may, but you can't pluck down the stars from the sky. The moon and the planets preach to the world the being and the existence and the attributes of a mighty creator, a designer, an omnipotent one. And he's telling the Areopagus that they were uh, very religious. They had a common memory. And it's there today in the hearts of every natural man in, in Aberystwyth. It goes all the way back to Eden. And not many weeks go by without unbelievers being summoned at two in the morning, three in the morning, to the bar of justice, and they're being reminded of the follies and the pain and the hurt they've caused against those who love them 
the most. And they are made conscious that they need mercy and forgiveness from the living God. You're very religious, Paul says, because you are surrounded inescapably by the revelation of God. And now, if we could summon um, the Apostle Paul here to Aberystwyth this week and take him up uh, Penglis Hill to the campus, what would he say to the staff and the students at the college? Well, something like this. Men and women of the university, I saw that in every way you were religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw the TV screen altars where you watch and worship the sports deities, soccer and and rugby. I saw the science building where many go and they place their faith for the salvation of mankind in science. I find the fine arts building, that altar where artistic expression and performance reign supreme without subservience to any greater authority or morality. I walked through your halls of residence and observed your sex goddess posters and your beer can pyramids. And yet as I walked with some of you, I saw the emptiness in your eyes and I sensed the aching in your heart. I perceived that in your souls there was another altar an altar to an unknown God that many of you suspect exist. You have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. What you are longing for is something unknown, and I can tell you who that God is. That is what the French Christian and mathematician Blaise Pascal famously said, that there's a God-shaped void In the heart of every natural man. Man can't help it. He can't help. A famous editor of the Dublin Times. Who uh, had turned his back on every form of religion. And his wife was having a serious operation. And so he was with her. Held her hand the night before the operation. She was first in in the morning. And then he kissed her goodbye and he walked down by himself to the car in the car park. And he stood by the car and he looked at the hospital and he found himself praying. He said it wryly. He who had denied God for so long, at that time, that sense in his heart expressed itself. Every man is made for worship. And worship they will. Their own gods. A multiplicity of gods. Because what is known of God, Paul says, is plain to them. And is clearly seen in all that is created. So Paul was there. And he was on a collision course with unbelief. Him whom you ignorantly worship. Let me declare to you the true God, the living God. That you might know him for yourself. That's why I've come to Athens You're religious, yes, in every way, but you don't know God. But I know him. I've spoken to him this morning. And now I want to tell you about him. Thirdly, you see here, Paul had found an altar to the unknown God. 
This is what he said. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an Unknown God. So the NIV, it captures, again, the activity of Paul when it says he looked around. The word means to survey. It means to inspect. It means to scrutinize. Like a sheep farmer will go then uh, to the mark here and um, the mart, he's, he's looking for a new ram. And so he's checking the rams, their shoulders and their height and their vigor and he's scrutinizing them before he'll pay 80 pounds for a new ram or far more. Paul was looking, and and he noticed this. Now, there is no altar yet discovered with this uh, title to an unknown God. One may be discovered under the sea, under the sands, But we do have references to such altars. There was a plague in Athens in the year 550. No medicines that they had could kill the virus. No amount of sacrifices could extinguish the plague. And so the um, philosopher Epimenides then, he suggested to them that they do this. Let loose a number of black and white sheep on on the Areopagus, he said, on Mars Hill. And wherever a sheep stops and folds its legs under him and settles down, set up there an altar. And that's what they did. They watched the sheep's behavior and they put up a number of altars and they didn't know what God was causing this plague. And so they put up an altar, we're told, with the phrase, to the God whom it may concern, to the unknown God. So there were the altars there still, then, five centuries later, on Mars Hill. So 30,000 altars, it's estimated, were in Athens, and still they had to, just in case, just in case they'd, they'd missed out on an unknown god, they put up altars to the unknown god. You, you see it in India, if you've been to India, then you see, as you come into every little village or town, there's a shrine. Uh, outside it. No one knows how many gods there are in Hinduism. Maybe a hundred million, maybe a million million. uh, Everyone can have any god that they want. And what was true in Athens then is true in India today. Paul says, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to proclaim to you. You understand, he's not saying God is unknowable. Uh, Let's not think that. Let's translate it. You worship him not knowing him. So they were worshipping in in ignorance. It was not an informed worship. It was not an edified, an educated worship. It was a hunch worship. It was a feeling worship. And that's what they were doing when they would go to this God and his temple and make this sacrifice because a friend had told them that this God could help this illness or this barrenness or this trade that they were engaged in. But they didn't know the, the Lord. They'd failed to find him. And that's what the inscription was saying. 
They didn't know what they were talking about. Um, the unknown God. I want you to know that I'm someone who does know God. And now I'm going to proclaim him to you. They were brilliant men. They were the most outstanding scholars and thinkers on the whole globe. They were not a community of cannibals. This was a city that took pride in its intellectual prowess. This was old Harvard. This was old Oxford and and Cambridge. This was a city that could boast of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle among its old boys. And yet, in spite of the distinguished alumni that Athens had, it didn't know God. The world through wisdom doesn't know God. It's not the way. Now, when we uh, hear someone say God, we can assume that they are talking about the same God that that we know, uh, or that they worship God. They're worshipping the God that we've gathered to worship today. For us, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the Shorter Catechism's definition. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and these three are one God. That's the summary of what the Bible tells us about God. But uh, very few people will confess that uh, that's their God. N.T. Wright, uh, uh, theologian and uh, lecturer, he began his... uh, career when he finished his training as a chaplain in uh, Worcester College in Oxford. And he told us that um, every new term he'd arrange with all the new students to see them all and have coffee with them in the first couple of weeks just to welcome them and give them some uh, initial acquaintance with himself. And most students were happy to meet with him. But as they drank coffee and chatted A number of them would make a comment like this, uh, a bit hesitant and tongue-tied, but this is what they would say. You know, um, you won't be seeing much of me in chapel services. You see, Dr. Wright, um, I don't believe in God. Now, N.T. Wright would smile kindly at them and uh, nod his head, and then he'd ask the student, oh, that's interesting, Uh, Which kind of God don't you believe in? This used to surprise them, he says. They they mostly regarded the word God as univocal. In other words, uh, meaning the same thing. So they'd stumble out a few phrases about a God who um, lived up in the sky and looked down disapprovingly at the world and occasionally intervened by... uh, by sending miracles and sending bad people to hell and then taking good people to live with him forever. and That was the stock response that they had uh, to uh, this spy-in-the-sky theology. And then N.T. Wright would say, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. Um, I don't believe in that God either. 
Now that news, again, was a surprise to them. Um, Numbers of the college chaplains in Oxford, the rumor said, were atheists. And so they thought he was... um, He was an atheist. He was saying that. And so they would nod their heads with relief. And then uh, he would say to them, "Uh, No, no, you see, I believe in the God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the sort of God most people in this uh, postmodern Western world don't believe in. They have their own view, but not the orthodox confessional view of Jesus Christ as the word made flesh who has dwelt among us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Christians that are here today want all of you to believe in, in this God, the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ, the God who who is here in in the Bible, who spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets, and now in these last days uh, speaks to us by his son and by his apostles. And in the Gospels and in the letters then, Jesus Christ has made himself known to us as the embodiment of the living God. If you want to know who God is, then Jesus Christ is that living God. He says, I and my father are one. He's not the God who makes women second-class citizens. He's not the God who only wants our money. He's not a God who shakes his head and frowns at us and is against our pleasures in life. But he's a God who supremely has made himself known in his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, here we see how Paul made a proclamation of this. What you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now, it's a wonderful word that's often used in in the Acts. It's used in the epistles, too, about the spread of the gospel. Um, The gospel spread because of the lives of the early Christians, how they lived their love and their forgiveness and their kindness and their bravery in suffering, their sweetness of character, that commended the God they worshipped to men and women. But it also spread because they, they wanted to share their faith. They wanted to make it known. We read... The word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas. We read the testimony of God was proclaimed to the Corinthians and so on. It's a very common word. And Paul was conscious that he had a commission. God had met with him. And God wanted him to speak. As a herald sent by a king speaks with a certain authority. As an ambassador sent by his king to another country to express his concerns or his requests, to speak with authority in that way. And that's what proclamation involves. It involves a conviction that what we say 
is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's why you should all be Christians. Because Jesus Christ is the truth. That's the best reason. So you can proclaim softly and gently, can't you? Of course you can. With your voice breaking with emotion and having to take a few deep breaths to stop choking up. That's powerful proclamation. You can shout and not proclaim. And after somebody shouted at you for 20 minutes, you want to start shouting right back at them. You're just being loud. But proclamation means a conviction that what you have to say is utterly relevant to everybody listening. It is the most relevant message you could possibly hear. You need this more than anything else. More than stuff, more than money, more than promotion, more than a wife or a husband or children. You need this Jesus Christ. And the source of it then is, of this proclamation is not the X factor of human personality and charisma. It's not that. And man manipulation and tear-jerking stories and soft music and so on. Peter says we're not lords over those entrusted to us. We're not bullies. We're not psychiatrists. We are sinners speaking to sinners. We, we are beggars. We found food. Come, we will show you where you can where you can feed and not hunger again. There's living waters that will spring up within you. That's what we are telling people. Uh, The message from the Lord. Hallelujah. The message that I'll give to you. It is recorded in his word. Hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and, and there's no one else. So that was the heart of apostolic proclamation. It wasn't out of man, it wasn't in a pleasing personality, oh, let's be sweet. It wasn't found in natural gifts and uh, human eloquence and acting skills. It comes from the proclamation that Matthew made. And Mark made, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Luke made, and John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And our proclamation is theirs. And we look for the Holy Spirit to authenticate and work in us, as he worked in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Paul, and Peter, and Jude, and James, and the others. Paul says, I I, a man who'd been a rotter, a pompous, hard, cruel, inquisitor general, and was changed by grace and made sweet and loving and kind and useful and laid down his life, not for some political cause, 
but because he had seen Jesus of Nazareth alive from the dead. Here in Athens, before the burghers of the city, Paul didn't have an attentive, believing congregation to speak to us as I do. But he still still spoke with authority and proclaimed the message of God to them. Just like he said when he ended a letter with the words, what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. What I'm saying to you is the Lord's will for your life. That's why he's brought you here. The men of Athens had never heard anything like it. They'd never heard anything concerning the resurrection from the dead and one God and that they must meet him and be judged by him and give an account to him. They'd never heard that in their lives before. But they'd never met a man speaking with the Holy Spirit's authority and graciousness and earnestness. The ring of truth that sounded in every word that convicted them and moved them. That was the gift of God to them. And one of them believed that day. And a significant woman believed that day. And a number of others listening to this encounter believed. It was a wonderful, never-to-be-forgotten day. It was the beginning of the gospel in Athens. Or may it be the beginning of the gospel in, in your life too. To believe in this Savior. This Jesus. Lord bless your word to us now we pray. Oh may it bring forth fruit in our lives. May we be persuaded by the testimony of the word of God. Of the Savior who died for sinners to rid us of our guilt and rose on the third day to live in the power of an endless life as our shepherd and teacher, our paraclete, our advocate, our strength and hope, our comfort. Ah, grant that to favored men and women. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.